I'm thinking of breaking parole and taking you out to Santa California. Sailor! You look for that? I'd go the far end of the world for you, baby. Oh, you know I would. Rocking good news. Buffalo now. Those are dummies. Dummy. <laughs> my purse is gone now, she tells me! I'm making my lunch! I'm Murphy. Tom, are you still here? This is going to be a fun one, Brother Pan. <laughs> uh, it is going to be a fun one. What are we going to do this week? I think it's going to be something down trip down memory lane. Wild at heart, my friend. Wild at heart. That was the first movie we fell in. I mean, that was the one we really, truly became obsessed with, I think, when we were kids. Well, this came out in August of 1990, about a week or so before we started our senior year, and probably about two or three weeks before we got the season one tapes of Twin Peaks from your girlfriend at the time, Stacy Flatt. Uh, well, yeah, I don't think she would like you mentioning her name, but uh, yeah, I think, <laughs> so in a weird way, uh, so Wild at Heart kind of became before Twin Peaks, or it came in unison, like our obsession with both, right? Yeah, but we didn't see Wild at Heart when it originally arrived in theaters in August. So actually, I didn't see the film until it hit video in January, even though I knew all about it. And I'm trying to rack my brain. Why didn't I see the film? Why? Because we talked about it. Remember the story of uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, the guitarist um, who's from Texas. (laughs) We we went to high school in, in the Dallas suburbs and... He died in like a helicopter helicopter crash, and Is that how he died? his okay, I think so. With and the big bopper, his, right? Richie Valens. No. <laughs> That's Buddy Holly, man. It's like oh, 1959. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember the story vividly. Like the first week of school, we had off-campus lunch, so we could go leave school and go lunch, which we did every day because we had cars and everything. But you and a couple of cronies said that you went to Stevie Ray Vaughan's funeral, which was a lie. Yeah. And then you also saw Wild at Heart, which was also a lie. Oh, I don't remember the Wild at Heart part, but yeah, we went oh, to yeah. uh, we went to Dallas and went uh, day partying or something, like going hanging out with, in high fancy hotels, I think. I'm not sure what we did. I think we tried to end up going to the funeral, but it never, it was too far away and there's too many people and we were late. It was just a, a good excuse to uh, tell the teachers. They all got a little chuckle out of it and we got a few days less attention. Well, here's like a, a question to you Came 29 a years later. Why didn't you invite me? 
I have no idea. I don't even know who I was. I know Chip was there, our friendship, but I have no idea who else was there or how it happened. It's like the old memory bank starting to slowly fade away, Tom. It's yeah. you know, drool cup. Yeah. It's like got a hold of my files from the hard drive. Well, I think years. that one of, the, one of the reasons why I wasn't uh, in full peaks mode, because I still had not seen, other than a, a few moments when it was running um, during the spring, during the original run, I think in April and May, when we were still juniors in high school. But during that whole time of that spring into the summer and then going into our senior year in the fall, I was uh, I was dating someone and my life revolved around her. And then when senior year was starting and getting back with you guys, that whole thing. So I was caught up in that moment, the, the you know senior year, just the the hubris of like, oh, we're on top of the world in this small little town in Texas. So my world was revolving around a girl and the events of high school and not as much as movies, which So you chose your social life over David Lynch, Tom, at that time is what you're saying. For a brief period of time. But once Hmm. September kicked Hmm. in, it was full peaks mode. And then I think Wild at Heart had already left the theaters. And then it was, I monitored it. I, I knew when it was going to come out on video. And it was like, I think the first day, movies used to come out on videos, uh, video uh, stores on Tuesday. So I probably went that Tuesday, <laughs> got it, and watched it. And Remember if memory serves, I think I took a day off. I think I just stayed just watched to watch it all that. night. Oh, okay. Just watch what. And then I, I think. And you showed it to me? You know, Is that how like, I first saw it? Yeah, I think what I just showed it to you, and then you and I, and then we started the, we had a cult of Bob of Twin Peaks, but we, we started also a cult of, of Wild at Heart, which was probably, I think, you know, looking back, way more popular than our cult of Bob, because people really responded positively to Wild at Heart. Well, yeah, we used to have parties and play Wild at Heart, and you would have uh, girls, like, devote their lives over from Christ over to David Lynch, and you'd have them a little, what was their little chant, a little Through the Darkness Past? You had a little magician-type Yeah, It was a total Vanda. kind yeah. of, like, riff, like, probably completely yeah. stoned and just riffing. Um, and the, and <laughs> we have videotape of that somewhere, right? We do. We had the, what we, we do is, I had this loft disciples. during uh, college, our freshman year, and it was kind of the hub and then on the weekends we would invite a bunch of people and have this kind of this party and then we would put a movie on the background and then we put like a soundtrack on and i would have a video camera because i was taking film classes at uh at college at the time and wild at heart was the movie that was predominantly playing on a loop in the background and, and the soundtrack as well we loved the soundtrack so we really loved uh, uh, wild at heart and devoted pretty much a lot of our uh, free time on the weekends when we were watching movies to this one specific movie so much so we're like five that- sailors running around town <laughs> and one Crispin Glover <laughs> Christmas Dale we, yeah. but I don't, still don't guess who the movie. Christmas Dale was yeah in our group who's the Christmas Dale no no, no we're you- not going to go there we'll <laughs> tell some stories but we're not going to tell all the stories yeah but um, but I also want to uh, before we get into the we're going to get into the movie and we're going to get into a, a couple of Twin Peaks tidbits here or whatever but I think the first uh, time I had any kind of reference to this film or I knew anything about it now this is pre-internet and of course my mind is swimming in a girl and, and you know being trying to be you know like a cool senior which I was an abject failure at but um, I saw on Entertainment Tonight that was really one of our big sources of entertainment information back in the day it was right after the 10 o'clock news Entertainment Tonight with Mary Hart, Mary Hart. and what's his name John Tesh John Tesh yeah yeah, and we would watch that. We were, I would get my box office results from that. I would just all this stuff or whatever. But there was, <laughs> I still remember it, like a featurette that Lisa Gibbons did on the set of Wild at Heart. And um, I found Did Lisa it wear on, her like leather pants like onto the set to do the interviews? <laughs> <laughs> 
She was dressed exactly like Marietta with yeah, the red, yeah. you know, lipstick on her face. Yeah, okay. No, she actually did not. She did the whole thing voiceover. Like you never saw her. It was just all the the interviews and on set. But I found the 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 cue, the clip on YouTube, and it's funny watching it now because I didn't remember all of it because it had been like almost thirty years. But it was almost like they were doing this as a a, a piece on Willem Dafoe because like, he was the big star of that bunch. Like. Twin Peaks had not aired yet, and this well, because was because of Last Temptation of Christ, or why exactly was that? Yeah, I think so. To live and die, platoon and the platoon, oh, platoon, and, yeah, yeah, and the Last Temptation of Christ, which was '86 and '88. So it's almost like Laura Dern and Nick Cage, who was just starting. I mean, he had done Raising Arizona, but he hadn't become the Nick Cage. He, I think he did Vampire's Kiss in 89, but that movie made like five bucks. We <laughs> saw it. We loved it. Yeah, loved we it, loved yeah. Vampire's Kiss. Very good. But um, so it was funny to see that. But this is all happening when Twin Peaks has been shot. So Lynch had shot Twin Peaks in February and March, I believe, of 89. Like, I think this is the day. This is Twin Peaks Day. So 30 years ago, or I think it was 30 years ago, yeah. 30 years ago, he was filming Twin Peaks, and then he went off. When they got the the green light to do more, he also had decided at that point to shoot Wild at Heart. So he went and shot Wild at Heart, and then Frost went ahead and pretty much uh, uh, was the showrunner for, for the show. first season, ran kind of the show. Lynch shot the no, movie. Ruined. came. <laughs> well, Lynch came back afterwards yeah. and shot his episode, I believe, after all the other episodes of the first season were shot. And I think he, he brought David Patrick Kelly. I think he created that character from his experience from, from Wild at Heart. And then, uh, <laughs> then of course, he was in... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to leave. Is that his only line? No, remember, it's a marine issue. Oh, that's it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So a little uh, chron- uh, chronology there with, with Wild Heart, because this is really a very prolific era for David Lynch. I mean, in a span of just about two and a half years, he had you know directed eight hours of Twin Peaks, shot Wild at Heart, uh, produced, uh, directed uh, Industrial Symphony Number no. One with Angela Battlemende, produced the the album Floating into the Night with with Julie Cruz, and then also at the tail end of this two and a half year uh, cycle, uh, did On the Air and ultimately Firewalk with Me. So he did all of this in about a two. No, that was after yeah, ninety three. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but this was really, and it's what's interesting to 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 note is the transition from. David Lynch, a little bit more of a conventional filmmaker with some kind of surrealistic tendencies uh, to this mainstream weird icon who's on the cover of Time magazine and then slowly discovering this kind of new, um, I don't know, this new facet, this new toolkit or tool in his toolbox where he really kind of is evolving as a director during this transitional period where we see that in full force, I think, in the second season premiere of, of uh, Twin Peaks and then ultimately with Firewalk With Me, we're dealing with you know time jumping and uh, multiple layers and uh, portals and all kinds of weird symbolism and esoteric so uh, uh, stuff. So really a, a, an interesting time in, uh, in Lynch lynch's universe and yeah did you think he kind of cheated on twin peaks with uh wild at heart you know what i'm saying like what would season two have been like if he had not done and not you know gone done wild at heart and left frost to go crazy with it well he left during season one that's the whole misconception is that he was gone during season two no he really oh. didn't have yeah he wrote so, he directed yeah and co-wrote the pilot and then co-wrote the first two scripts of season one and then other than directing the second episode 
I don't think he had a lot to do with other than like, you know, being filled in by Frost and other producers and meetings and whatnot and improving casting. But he was not there to, you know, drive the, the, the ship, so to speak, during season one. But he was fully on board for all of season two other than checking out at some oh, point. Boy. Well, that must have been what it is, is he let all the directors or whoever, Leslie Gagletter and all these other people, Harley Payton, like kind of do their thing. And he just kind of gave up the ship once they had to reveal Laura as the killer. He stopped. He lost interest. Well, that's it. seemed it. like he yeah. left. <laughs> seemed like he's he left in that... season two. Yeah, it does. And I think he did at some point, really pretty much after he directed his episode. It was like, this do you think he really was line? on the set the whole time going like, OK, yeah, I like all this. These turns, the, the pine weasel. Yep. Love that. Like all the little <laughs> Nikki. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Good. More of that. You think he was there? Like actually signing off no, that you, stuff, or was he just if, his own world? If you watch, plenty something else. <laughs> if you watch this second season, I think you know when he comes back. It's when his character reappears, Cole, which about three or four episodes before the end. Remember that great scene oh, yeah. with Shelley and at the diner, and, and I, that's when it really kind of got its footing again. And it'd been canceled. There was only like three more episodes to go, not but it not been canceled yet. Right. Well, I think the writing was on on the wall for sure, but. Um, yeah, so um, oh, one thing I want to say before we get into Wild at Heart, here we are like 10 minutes in, we we're, we're, haven't really spoken about Wild at Heart yet, but today is officially Twin Peaks Day. It's like February 24th, um, and uh, this is the day that Cooper arrives, and February 23rd is the day that, that Laura died, and uh, uh, we were posting some stuff on, on social media. I was posting some stuff or whatever, but I did come across something on Reddit real quick. I wanted to ask you a little bit of a, a Peaks uh, 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 tidbit here for for this particular podcast because I found it so interesting. I wanted to get your take. I came across this this Reddit this question this query. Someone wanted to ask the fans what their one of their favorite scenes if they could really kind of just say what their favorite scene of the entire um, original run that isn't like really iconic something nothing to do with Bob or the Black Lodge or, you know, uh, Maddie's death or something that's a little bit more subtle. And I came up with one. I was wondering, like, if you could think of one scene from the original run that um, kind of just spoke to you, that you kind of just go to, that you really like. You mean spoke to me or just I thought was funny or good and quirky and interesting? Well, to anything, whether it spoke to you, that stands out, sticks in your craw, uh, that you think is like, terrifying, funny, dramatic. Is there anything that comes to mind? I was thinking of all the, like, the bits in the hospital, like with Pete smelling the uh, the bad uh, uh, cafeteria food and, like, them doing the like trying to sit with Ronette and doing the swivel the swivel uh, like all that stuff is comedy I love that stuff it's unheralded I like that part the doctor coming in and like we gotta do something about the, the food it's terrible it's good it's good comedy very dry it's kind of like Dougie Dougie humor you're picking all the the scenes from our favorite episode the second season premiere so that That's was it. the one so that really is chock full of a lot of moments that still stick with you to this day that aren't like iconic. I love that. That's my favorite episode for sure. By far. I don't know why I think it's, you know what it is? I think cause we had seen like, uh, that was the first one we saw live, right? Like really engaged. Yeah, it right? was. Yeah. So that was it. And it blew me out of the world. Yeah. It was so great. Ending scary. Bob. For me, it's the, the scene with Ben and Audrey where she asks him, did you kill Laura? And he goes, I, loved her loved her that for me is so heartbreaking that and he's still like not only in love with laura but obsessed with laura and he's got that picture on his desk and pouting there's audrey who's just almost been murdered in the same place where he was frolicking with laura one-eyed jacks 
and he's almost going down memory lane while his daughter... Well, he tried to have sex with her in One Edge Axe. Well, Audrey, yeah. But yeah. just his performance and the fact that Laura, her, her specter, her spirit, even though she's been dead a couple of weeks, is still hovering over the town and kind of affecting these characters, which I always thought was really the strength when Twin Peaks was firing in all cylinders, other than the, the main narrative investigation of Cooper and Truman, when the other townsfolks were somehow like affected by Laura, whether it was James and Donna or Maddie or Leland and Sarah, or, or even like, you know, Josie, because she really, Laura had her, you know, uh, experiences with a lot of the townsfolks. And that's where it really kind of resonated, where, where really Twin Peaks was firing in all cylinders. And for me, that is the, the scene that is kind of subtle that really not a lot of people will talk about when you talk about the original run where um, everything was firing in all cylinders and Dick Beamer, his, his, his performance in that scene was just fab, just awesome. Yeah, I think that's what like kind of a trope for like uh, from old noir movies. Like, remember Laura Otto Priminger? I think the same thing. Laura died. Yeah. Uh, back then, they all talked about her relation to everybody and how she affected everyone's life. And it turns out she wasn't dead at all. And everyone compared that maybe he got some inspiration from uh, Priminger's Laura. Well, I think that 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 film Laura certainly um, was uh, somewhat of an influence. Uh, for uh, Waldo Lidecker, I think. Was also yeah, they took the name Waldo Lidecker. I mean, and other films like The Fugitive, the TV show, and, and Vertigo. I mean, all kind of, that really was, and this kind of leads into Wild at Heart, is that the pop culture. Now, um, pop culture, I mean, you and I, I mean, growing up, we were always referencing the stuff that we were watching, like whether it was SNL back in the day or SCTV or, you know, movies with like Bill Murray, Ghostbusters, Chevy Chase, who we loved back in the day. Um, and we would use that in our own vernacular day to day. But Looking back on films, I don't think pop culture, and, and maybe I'm wrong and you can you know, enlighten me here, is that pop culture really didn't start taking hold into film until the 90s. Am I wrong about that? Or Yeah, well, I mean, I think just in terms of like, uh, like Tarantino referencing, like uh, I think that was a big deal, like starting to reference movies, reference other actors, have characters talking about the pop culture the zeitgeist within movies. I think that was a 90s thing. So I think, so I think Wild at Heart was uh, kind of a, a, a kind of a predecessor to this, uh, the Tarantino movies that, you know, True Romance seems to be you know, cut from the same cloth of the Wild at Heart DNA. And yeah. Maybe a little bit of Natural Born Killers. And then you think of all those movies like Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead and The Suicide Kings and everything like that. But looking at back at Wild at Heart, you know, people sometimes kind of shied it for going too over the top with, you know, the Wizard of Oz references or whatever, but it's built into these characters that Lynch, the director, and then infusing the characters because none of the Wizard of Oz stuff is in the book. We should preface this. I'm oh, sure a lot of people know. That's the Lynch know. thing. Yeah, he supposed to put that in everything. Yeah, this is based, Wild at Heart is based on a book, Sailor and Lula by, by Barry Gifford, but even though Lynch is very faithful to the book, he really kind of uses it as a springboard to you know go off in all these different places and one of the things that i think he created uh that really kind of made the movie gel for him was was the wild was the wizard of oz references which he's still using to this day but watching the film again is that the, that those those characters are themselves pop culture icons i mean really sailor ripley is is elvis and and uh and lula lynch is referred to her as like marilyn monroe it's like i think you can see them as these two pop culture icons but the characters themselves are also referencing things that they saw in their own lives namely the wizard of oz and it really was kind of a forerunner to this whole era that we're still living you know in today where movies are self-referential they're using the pop culture and i think you know people don't give wild at heart enough credit for really being the kind of the forerunner for that uh because what because they used uh 
Like Wizard of Oz stuff? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You don't, I mean, it's really, it's like pop culture. It's like, it's not only Lynch using that as a pop culture, using Elvis or Marilyn Monroe, but the characters themselves are using it as a reference. And that's what I think kind of distinguishes it a little bit. It's not just something that's, you know, made to, you know, uh, for a laugh or a little Yeah, wink. that's true. Like Lula seeing like her mom, like the Wicked Witch flying next to her in the car at night. That's true. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she kind of melted at the end, you know, with the, the, the lipstick face. I'm <laughs> oh, It's all over did. the place. There's like any number of references to the Yellow Brick Road, you know, that old Wizard of Oz, you know, Emerald City, you know. Was Johnny Farragut the Scarecrow? <laughs> no, I don't think. No. Who's the Tin Man? <laughs> it's not that literal. No, Bobby Prue's the lion? Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. no. God, He's a Bobby monkey. He's a but, monkey, yeah. um, but okay, so let, we're going to go kind of, I'm going to pose some questions to you, but I want to kind of give an, an overview. We've kind of discussed already how we came to Wild at Heart and our backstory, but um, this really was 1990 going into 1991, the, the year of, of David Lynch, where I say that he didn't really go mainstream. The mainstream came to him, but the whole Cannes Film Festival, I mean, this movie won the Palme d'Or, uh, but divided critics. The French loved it. The French loved it. Bertolucci, who was the, the president of the Cannes, jury, uh, the Cannes jury, was a huge Lynch fan. I think to this day, well, I think he died recently, but he would always put, I, I see these lists on like Sight and Sound, and he would always put Blue Velvet at the top. So he loved Lynch. So I think that was a little bit of, uh, of luck in Lynch's favor of having someone um, love the film because when that film premiered and even when it won, there was apparently some some boos led by no other than Roger Ebert who really just, just, just oh, yeah. hated the film. <laughs> he hated Lynch. Yeah, at that point he hated Lynch. Yeah. So it, it was, was very, very anti-violence. That was the thing. He, was, he didn't like the horror movies as well, like all the graphic horror movies going on back then. Like he was very anti- the, you know, the violence is probably what would really turn Because any critic is going to lend himself to hypocrisy. It's just, it's really a lot of it is personal taste. And did he ever I change just, his tune? Or did he always hate Lynch and just never retract that review? No, he did with, guess what? Mulholland Drive. And why? Because the sex was hot. Exactly. The sex was hot. The lesbian scene. <laughs> <laughs> that was his catchphrase in the SNL skit. That's <laughs> right. So and uh, the sex was hot. Yeah, that probably was, was it. Yeah. But you can also see what that can premiere. It was hot sex though in Wild at Heart. Come on. Well, that's something that the, the, the sex is kind of played straight. Like sex in Lynch movies usually connotes some kind of, you know, bizarreness. Some yeah, kind evil. Of like, yeah. yeah, evil or ritualistic, you know, sex Horror. magic. But yeah. this one's played straight. Ritualistic. And Sailor and Lula are clearly... It's positive. They have great sex. It's like all in montage form. It's not like, you know, graphic. It doesn't, we don't spend a lot of time, but they're in bed a lot and they please each other. Right. Maybe that's the way it. Like that, all the other couples in other in other episodes of Lynch in bed, the sex is like not satisfying, and that's why the, when the horror begins, maybe. No, and I think that's why this movie is is fun. It's it's a roller coaster ride, and I think maybe like reading up on this film because I haven't. It's not like you were saying like, you didn't even watch this because it's not in any platforms. I mean, you've seen it a billion times. Yeah, you can reference it, but and I own it, fortunately. But you can't get it on Netflix or Hulu, and people aren't really talking about this movie. Now as they are Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive or, or Lost Highway, Fire Walk With Me, because it doesn't have that puzzle box the mentality. It doesn't have that mystery, that core mystery. This really is, you know, love on the run through hell, basically. And uh, on the surface, it's, it's kind of conventional. It's, very, it's kind of pulpy, like the noir, the old, uh, you know, Paul James Kane and, and whatnot. That's why I think it's cut from the same cloth that Tarantino, who is, I think, heavily influenced by Wild at Heart. But, um, and I think that might be one of the additional reasons why it's not as uh, discussed as much 
as some of these, these other films, but it should. I think it's hard for millennials to take uh, Nicolas Cage seriously. You know what I'm saying? I think that the heat, the stank of Cage is on the as well. <laughs> but Mandy, he's back. I know he's back, right? I love it. Yeah, he's back. But he's Nick Cage from the mid '80s, from Peggy Sue got married. Through like what leaving Las Vegas? <laughs> Remember he was doing the Gumby imperson- yeah. impersonation or Pokey yeah, or something? Yeah. yeah and Vampire's yeah, Kiss. Yeah. You already mentioned that Raising Arizona. I mean Nicholas. We love Nicholas Cage, and this was his. For for me, it's it's his best performance. I mean, I think he's incredible. But what's really interesting about watching the film again and, and his character is, even though he's deeply in love with Lula and is trying to do the right thing, he's just not very smart. Lula's the smart one. She's the younger one. Of course, she's obsessed with him and you know sex, but who isn't at age 20? But she's the smart one. She's got her shit together. She winds up raising a kid on her own and defying her mother, but she loves Sailor, but he's the fuck up. And I think that uh, even though there's some... He kind of is just like an extension of H.I. McDonough. Just like the better outfit. You're kind of right. Well, she wasn't she the yeah. one who was wearing the pants in the family? She was the one who was driving the yeah. boat. And that, yeah. Yeah. So, um, exactly. But, yeah. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about like my experience with, with the film and the filmmaking side of it. Oh, before I, I get into that, though, you were talking about the sex scenes. One thing to notice is that like what Lynch does during the sex scenes, I mean, you're getting predominant the close-ups of cigarettes and these, you know, matches striking the box in extreme close-up, the flames and the fire, which as a quick and aside, like this movie is more fire walk with me than fire walk with me. But um, the sex scenes are shot with this. I don't know if it was a lens or done in post, but he, he kind of superimposes these, these, this color schemes over the sex. Do I think kind of connote the intensity you know, of their passion, of their lovemaking. But if you notice the palette that he's using are the colors of the rainbow, which ties into the whole Wizard of Oz thing too, with like, you know, somewhere over the rainbow, which is something I didn't really kind of pick up on as as a Ute. But now watching it again, it's like, oh, that's another little layer that, you know, that he's, you know, applying to, to the film, which I thought was interesting. I thought it was just kind of a stylistic touch, but I think there's a deeper meaning. Well, there. I'm colorblind, so I never noticed it. So <laughs> thanks for bringing that Something I missed out on, I guess. But um, the editing of the film i mean if you read the script which i did i didn't read the book before we started um podcasting but i've read the book before but i still own it but it's been a long time but i read the script you'll you'll see like why this film is edited in the way that it is but in a good way because there's just so much material and knowing lynch with twin peaks um, he, he likes to shoot and overshoot and trying to put these puzzle pieces together is, is, is seemingly a, a chore. But in this film, I think it kind of works to his advantage uh, because um, if you read the script, the opening scene where, where Sailor plugs Bob Ray Lemon uh, takes place almost at the end of the film. It's like a flashback at the end of the film. And they decided at the last minute, Lynch and Dwayne Dunham, that this is how we should start to film. And that was the perfect choice because it really sets up not only the characters in about two minutes, but what we're going to see, the the sudden burst of violence and kind of the absurdity that goes along, you know, or that the underpinning of absurdity with these characters and this kind of story is all encapsulated in this first like two or three minutes. And of course, it's beautifully shot. But the editing, the rhythms, the way that the characters are, are talking in bed and telling a story, and how um, uh, that will flash back to it, and at random, like something will happen, and, and Nick Cage or Sailor will look a certain way, and will flash back. There's all these flashbacks and flash forwards, and all these this this technique that's being used, and it really was a, a new thing for me. 
uh, when I was like 19 or 18 when I was watching this. And two of my favorite edited films of all time are Straw Dogs and All That Jazz. And this one I have to put in the, the top three as well. I don't think I had seen very many films that were portrayed this way, that unfolded this particular way. And uh, I think it was part of the, 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 the lure of the film for me and maybe my burgeoning uh, short attention span at the same time. But looking back on it, like you know, 25, 30 years later, it still holds up. It's still very potent. Well, yeah, I think also in the use of sound and the soundtrack with the editing made it really awesome and pop in the cinematography. It was like a masterwork. It was gorgeous. You know, it's pulp, but it was like it was probably one of his best shot, best produced films. Uh, when you add them all together, the sound, the editing, like everything, it was a full package. It was glorious. Yeah, I mean, really. Was, how much the, did it cost as a budget? It was kind of a bigger 10, budget for him, right? Yeah, it was $10 million, which was a, a nice chunk of change for Lynch back in the day. But it also is the last film that Lynch directed, here it is in 1990, that made more than $10 million at the box office. And overall, it's his third most popular feature after uh, Dune and Elephant Man. So Lynch never made a movie after this that that made more than ten million dollars. So it did do you know okay. I mean, it actually did really good for a Lynch film. But um, it was shot pre- pre- predominantly in California, which is interesting because a lot of it takes place in you know the South and in Texas and in New Orleans. But all those you know that scene with Sherilyn Fenn, like you see a Joshua tree, like you know clearly. I don't know why they decided to do that. Maybe he doesn't care. But That's yeah, it was true. Shot for, You're right. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. Although still, I think her acting could have been a little better. Could have had a couple more takes. Didn't seem too real. What, the Sherilyn Fenn scene? Yeah, her death scene. <laughs> Dude, that is the top three moment in the film. I know we you talked said, about this. Yeah, we we'll talk, we'll tell, bring yeah. it up. Bring it up. No, it's not, I, don't think, I, I thought it was impactful when I first saw it. I thought it was beautiful and I was very moved to watch it again. I was like, meh. We'll give it a take. <laughs> a couple more takes. Thing. I think it's brilliant. I think it's one <laughs> of his my opinion. No best directed <laughs> scenes. The little haunting Battle of Mente score. Her performance, uh, the, the 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 shooting, the cinematography. I mean, it's, we're in stark, you know, blackness. It's the dead of night. And you know, Lynch when he's shooting at night, he's being very realistic. So there's not much natural light, and uh, the starkness of that contrasted with uh, you know what's going on with the accident and Sherilyn Fenn's performance, the blood. And her just random screaming. I like Sailor's. I mean, I like Lula's reaction, and I like the way the use of Wicked Game, like going in and out and stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. That well, that is also the scene. The train. Well, well, we'll get back to this. I want to kind of go a little bit, you know, chronology. I'm just saying. I guess she didn't seem like she was really dying. Is all I'm saying. What? She's got this sticky stuff in she her. She seemed fine. She seemed fine. <laughs> so you don't think that she pulled off <laughs> someone who is near death? I think it was the shock and the adrenaline. And uh, and then you know that wore off very quickly, and then she she just slumped to the ground, and then she was dead seconds later. I th- I just well, I probably watched need it. to review it again because it's actually been a year or so since I've seen the movie, so I need to watch it again, and I need to watch the director's cut. Right? What was the difference between the director's cut? Isn't there wasn't there some longer version of the movie? Well, okay, there's a director's cut in the sense that what he submitted to the MPAA was uh, deemed X-rated. And I think the only scene that he really had to trim was uh, Bobby Peru's. Yeah, Peru head. That was it. So he had to trim that. But there's really no director's cut. But there is about an hour, I think an hour plus maybe, of deleted scenes, which Lynch put out about 10 years ago, which I watched about 10 years ago. Um, well, I mean, I'm going on memory here. Uh, there, he put them, to, which is very interesting. He 
They're like, we're just crap. 20 minutes at the gas station. That one time there's a 20 minutes at the gas station. <laughs> there's a, <laughs> there's the a lot of that stuff, like kind of extended scenes. Like you find out Lula's got a best friend and then, oh. you know, like, yeah. And uh, the, how like, it's little stuff that really kind of tie in together. Like you'll notice they, they drive two cars in the film, but you never understand why they drive two cars. Well, her best oh, friend gave her what her car and they did like a switcheroo. Um, so there's a scene with that. But the most interesting thing is that there's a little bit of an extension of, of, of Dell. And there's one great scene. Remember this, his last scene in the film where he's got the stick and he's, you know, he's got the cockroach in, the, in his the, anus. Yeah. And, kitchen floor, yeah. Yeah, but right, no, no, not the kitchen. No, yeah. where he, his final scene, like he's he's on the sidewalk and he kind of is making that. Oh yeah, he's leg. got the, yeah, he's walking funny because he's got the cockroach in his butt. Well, right before that, there's these random people that, that keep walking by the sidewalk and he's just kind of like does this, like he'll look at them and he'll just do like, how are you? How you doing? And just just keep doing that over and over again. It's just so classic, weird, funny, and I can see why I cut it because it goes on and on and on, and you don't really need that. But uh, the best scenes that were cut were related to Johnny Farragut, Harry Dean Stanton, and David Patrick Kelly, and uh, Red, uh, Calvin Lockhart who played uh, Drop Shadow and uh, and uh, Reggie. Fuck me, Reggie. Reggie. And so what they were doing is in the movie, like they just like wind up clubbing him and taking him to his death scene or whatever, but originally and what shot and what was cut they had like two scenes in new orleans they, they seemed to be bumping in to each other randomly but of course it wasn't random and johnny's slowly putting the pieces together and those scenes are great i mean there's some great dialogue and you see this kind of building menace that that they're really kind of insinuating that you know they're there for him and he's not picking it up because he's so focused on filing sailor and lula so those scenes are really good i wish they had somehow been incorporated in the film but a lot of it is yeah, there's some good stuff in there, but you can you know you can see why it was cut. I think he's like the heart of the soul of the whole movie, like Johnny Farragut, like Harry Dean Stanton. He could have, I could have definitely seen a few more minutes of him. He's great. Oh, I, I think it's his best Lynch role, even though he's been great in everything. Johnny Farragut, that scene where um, uh, he has dinner with Marietta right before he's going to get plugged or whatever, get killed, and you know she's like, "You bet your sweet ass," and she kisses him, and he, he says, "I love you." And I don't think I've ever seen Harry Dean like be so kissed happy. in a yeah. movie yeah. he's so happy and yeah. he's so good in this role and uh and once out. he leaves he's plugged i mean he's he's killed i mean the film loses a lot of his potency fortunately we get bobby peru which we'll talk a lot about in a little bit but yeah harry dean was classic in the in this movie by the way buffalo great. hunting what the fuck does that mean <laughs> well, <laughs> well that's supposed how, okay. to mean yeah <laughs> how many quotes of this movie have we used in our vernacular to this tons day? I mean yeah I mean like probably like 20 I, I, I have them all written down there, there's like 25 25 of them it's so many quotes in this film that we were using back in the day and to this day um, like my favorite one is is just so I, I love Mr. Reindeer I love phone's ringing <laughs> that's my favorite one yeah. he holds up the finger oh phone's god ring. I love we've that we've used that a lot so, yeah, yeah. Just it's so, a scene. It's probably it's more, probably the most quotable of all. Thanks to Barry Gifford, actually, probably right. Well, so I think some are Barry Gifford, but I think some are Lynch create uh, Lynch created ones, and maybe some were improvised. I don't know. It's probably a confluence of all three. But this is easily, in my opinion, the most quotable Lynch film, and in all of his films, I quote liberally from. But this is the one that just, just I think is just chock full from beginning to end, and it's stuff that's like even the 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 scene with uh, Harry Dean and uh, and and Diane Ladd, who we should talk about as well. Um, when uh, he goes missing and, and uh, 
She's reading the note. Buffalo, what you just said, Buffalo hunting. And uh, Santos comes in. He goes, I'd like you to all clear out. And that manager goes, how rude. Just that little line right there I've used <laughs> yeah. a million times. And then yeah. th- this is like a, just Tangentville, USA. I'm sorry, but there's so much that in this film that I want to talk about. But uh, related to Peaks, do you know there are 12 Peaks actors in this film? 12. 12? 12. 12? That's a lot. Wow. And, and actually 14 if you count the deleted scenes. So right now, I'm putting it's you amazing. on the spot. Name as Hell many no. as you can. No, no, there's no way. It's go time. Uh, Sarah Palmer, like uh, Pete Martell, uh, David Patrick Kelly, um, the guy that uh, the guy that was in uh, <laughs> that goes look at his hand it got clear blown off that was also in the Return right that guy yeah that's four. Um, Jesus, <laughs> I'm sure like what else? I can't. Uh, oh, Sherilyn Finn. Yeah. Uh, see who else it's tough isn't it yeah, that's what I'm saying. it's starting to get esoteric now now we're getting into like well yeah because it is esoteric is so got... jacketed? <laughs> no no Billy you want Zane? me to help you out a little bit yeah i'm already only five i can't think of anything <laughs> okay so del mibler's in it he's in that scene oh del okay he was yeah. the guy at the bank all right yeah del mibler's in it and uh um um, also, um, Jenny from the perfume counter in season one with Mr. What? Rangers. She's the naked girl dancing when he's on the toilet. What? Remember? I, that. Jenny, I did the... not know that. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Yeah, 100%, right. man. Um, right. That's next. That's like seven, right? Uh, well, I think what counts. So what else? Okay, so you named the Malcolm guy with Evelyn, right? That's the guy at the end. Like, same fucking thing happened to me last year. Is that who yeah. you're talking about? Yeah. Okay, yeah. then you got the Muddy guy who was uh, them making a pornographic movie, Texas style. He was in season three at the farm. Oh, that's what I was actually meaning. But oh, yeah, that's what exactly you were talking about. Yeah, okay. yeah, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, the other guy. Okay, so but what and was I'm he looking... in though? What was the other guy in that did the fucking head blew off? What what episode was he in? He was the whole Evelyn Marsh thing. He played Malcolm, like her uh, brother, the limo or driver or something. Yeah, he limo was like, driver? yeah, it was like was limo driving? driver or something like that. But <laughs> all right. <laughs> Dude, but, these are um, all esoteric as fuck, right? There's I know, but here's main, the thing with the, yeah. these actors, at least in season two, um, it, you would think that Lynch had some say in the casting of his own show. I think he brought a lot of these people on board because of his experiences well, of with them in Wild at Heart. Yeah. Oh, and I'm missing the big one. The big one is Mrs. Tremont. Uh, oh, oh yeah. Wait, what was she in Wild at Heart? She's in the, the Mr. Reindeer scene at the dinner with... Um, oh, that's right. With the flame spitters and the... Yeah. yeah and she's shit. like, you're not here to please Mr. Reindeer. You're here to you know, wear a fucking... Yeah, you're here to work. Yeah, yeah, you're here yeah. to work. And then also, okay, I think the final one is uh, the electrician from Fire Walk With Me. Um, that's that's Reggie. <laughs> Remember he was in the lodge or the convenience store? Oh, that's right. In the lodge. Yeah, Reggie was yeah. in the lodge. So yeah. Or the convenience wow. store lot, whatever. Yeah. So that, okay, so that's the 12 and the Don't two... Don't you think Jacoby the, would have been a good doc, Mr. Reindeer? <laughs> he probably would have, but yeah. I love W. Morgan Shepard, who just passed away, I think, a couple of weeks ago. He was oh, yeah, no, Mr. Good. Reindeer. I could probably do an hour podcast speculating on his business ventures because you know they're running drugs, they're doing prostitution, God knows what else. He's wearing the same ring as Santos because they say they they show Harry Dean the ring. That's how he knows it was Santos, and it made me think of like the Owl Cave ring. Like, was Lynch using that? Like, okay, this kind of mystical ring with his criminal enterprise. It's kind of linking them together. Like, that was somehow maybe the influence of the Owl Cave ring, or at least making it a, a, a presence in Firewalk with me. But I love Mr. Reindeer. I mean, it, 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 endlessly quotable, fascinating character. I mean, sitting on the toilet on the phone telling Santos how great his shit in how great his shit is while this naked Jenny from the perfume counter is just swaying in the bathroom like naked I mean it's just it's it's crazy it's 
crazy. They get a little so. graphic there. I don't remember that part, but okay, yeah, thanks. I did <laughs> we haven't good. seen the movie in a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, and then okay, the two cutting room floor people, uh, Scott Coffey. You know, the, the, you know, Scott Coffey, uh, who played <laughs> yeah, Trick yeah. in The Return, he yeah. he was in, I think, Big Tuna somewhere. And then, uh, remember the desk <laughs> somewhere. clerck? Was it extra? Somewhere. Was in the back, yeah, in the background. <laughs> he had a line or two. But yeah. uh, the desk clerk in season two is all, you know, uh, hunting M.T. Wentz. You remember her? She's uh, Yeah, yeah. She, she was actually in, on the air as the beatnik in, in that last episode, which is great. But she was in The Return as Coop's doctor in part 16, I think. Well, I don't feel so bad then, really. <laughs> Those are all very esoteric. I would That's never have gotten right. that shit. Snakeskin jacket. Did I ever tell you that this here jacket represents a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom? About 50,000 times. The snakeskin jacket. Do you know that line entirely? This here jacket's a symbol of my individuality and belief in personal freedom. You mean that? Excellent. You know, ding, aces, gold star. Do you know that snakeskin jacket was used... And, or at least, you know, Nick Cage owned that snakeskin jacket, basically. It wasn't written in the script, written in the script. He asked Lynch to use it, but he wanted to use it because he was inspired by Brando. Brando used a snakeskin jacket in his film. Do you remember The Fugitive Kind? Uh, I never saw The Fugitive Kind. I've heard of it. Sidney Lumet. Wow. So he ripped him off. He's not even unique. <laughs> did you actually ever see that movie? And, like, did it look like the same jacket? No, but I did a little research and I read the plot and it's got like a hair of what's going on in Wild at Heart. Just a little bit. So, uh, but 1960, I think, Sidney Lumet directed it. So I need to check that out. It's one that kind of uh, uh, slipped through the cracks. I bet it's gotten really stinky by now. He probably doesn't take it to dry cleaners. <laughs> oh, he gave it to, uh, he gave it to uh, Laura Dern. Oh, he gave it to her? Okay, he gave well, it to her. Nice. So you think she probably kept it, right? Uh, or burned it. One of the two. It's a relationship. <laughs> how it went. So where That's would it. you rate the soundtrack of Wild at Heart in the Lynch or Voix. Well, it's not as high now, but when I was 18 years old and 17, whenever it came out, it was very high. It was number one. It was great. We listened to it obsessively. We have great memories of life. Like the first time we went drove to Los Angeles, you and I, we were we lied to our parents and we went to come see my girlfriend. <laughs> and we ended up, the first time we drove through Hollywood, Los Angeles, we had that soundtrack on. And uh, so, yeah, man, we had it on constantly. And Wicked Game was like a life changer. That like... That was the song of 1990 or whatever it was. The video, everything was like, I was coming into my own, all my testosterone and <laughs> all that good stuff was happening. So yeah, it was great. It's awesome. One. I mean, obviously now, I don't know if I'd put it one, but it's right up there. Well, do you remember the song that was playing when we were driving through Los Angeles? Because we were videotaping. We had my video camera. And I remember we were yeah, driving Yeah, it was the one where they're at the gas station. Yeah, the gas station yeah, song. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's it. it. So you would have put that ahead of Twin Peaks at the time. Uh, well, what it is is whenever Lynch has a new movie, I buy the soundtrack and I become obsessed with it. I was also obsessed with the Lost Highway soundtrack, you know. So I, I always like did Mulholland Drive did not have one, right? But uh, I always loved. Yeah, it did. It had a great soundtrack. The, yes. to, I don't know if I bought. No, it did, but it wasn't like a musical. It was just the score. That I had that and I loved that, but it wasn't like you know like, uh, tons of songs. Like actual songs were on Wild at Heart, and so it was a different type. There were a couple of songs on there. Yeah. Yes, like some of the the the, the 50 songs, like uh, 16 Reasons Why I Love You, and. So there were a couple of songs on there, but it was mostly instrumental. Yeah, so Mulholland Drive was great. I would write to that and stuff, but it wasn't one that was like a life changer. You don't put it on at a party, you know what I'm saying? You're not playing it like with your life going on in the background as necessarily like uh, the way Wild at Heart soundtrack was. And I still love it. I love this. I don't have it anymore. I don't have any CDs anymore, but uh, I'd like to hear it again. <laughs> Although the, the Nick Cage singing parts, I probably would cut. I'd probably fast forward through that. Where would you rank Wild at Heart? Give me your top five Lynch soundtracks. Uh, um, I have no idea. I mean, dude, that's what I'm saying. Don't let me list them all, rate them all. I love them all. They're all great. Dune, not so much. <laughs> yeah, Elephant Man, not so much. 
So one thing I found out, there's two things that are interesting about the soundtrack. The soundtrack overall, we're discussing, yes, it's great. It's very eclectic because you've got Battle of Mente. You've got Lynch actually doing, I think, music for the first time. Chris Isaac, Peak, I- Peak Isaac as well. Yeah, you've got Peak Isaac, and then you've got, you know, like them, like Baby Please Don't Go Down to New Orleans. I mean, it's so eclectic. you got Power Mad and, and, and Elvis, or Nick Cage doing Elvis. I mean, it's great. I mean, it's a great road trip soundtrack, and I think that's why um, we loved it so much back in the day is because especially for that road trip that we went up to San Francisco through LA, um, even though we didn't talk to we each other. We also went to Billy Bob's, Texas. Well, we didn't talk to each other on the way back. <laughs> no, we, didn't. we didn't talk to each other for like six months on the way back. That's a long stretch <laughs> on the podcast. Isn't That's it? another podcast right there, yeah. I was going to mention the story where we went to Billy Bob's, Texas down in Fort Worth, a big <laughs> shit-kicking country, and we play, we did, we all rocked out like Nick Cage, kick, doing karate kicks. Everyone cleared out, and about 10,000 cowboys were about to kick our ass. It was a very bad mistake for us. We went oh, for it because we loved yeah, the movie was, so much. That's we would emulate Nick Cage doing his karate, and you know what's so great about that scene? Watching it now is that, I mean, I remember back in the day, but just watching it again, just a refresher is that during that whole scene where they're doing the karate, where he's doing the karate kicks and Power Mad's playing, is that the people crawling on the floor in the background. Yeah, we love the crawling on the floor. Yeah. We love the crawling yeah, we, on the floor. We love that, and it really yeah. ties into the the kind of the the I guess the like, I don't want to say it's the animal motif. But uh, if you read the script, like he cut these scenes, but it started off with these like these rabid dogs like tearing each other's flesh, and these these kids poking a, a like wasp. Johnny Farragut saw on television. He was watching it on TV, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, used that. But um, really, I think the underlying theme of this film is like kind of our our animalistic nature, like within within ourselves, within the main characters of Sailor and Lula, and all these other characters, and and it's it's sprinkled throughout the film, and it's something that I didn't really pick up on upon you know the first viewing or first probably you know several dozen viewings or whatever because I was so young but it's it's evident now there wasn't a lot of intellectualizing there was a lot of passion sex violence you know what I'm saying kiss kiss bang bang but there's stuff going on under the surface and well the surreality yeah the horror and, and also tying it in with Sarah Palmer in in season three when she's watching just like she's not making the barking noises like Johnny Farragut is but she's watching the same thing like animals ripping each other apart so I don't know if it's like a lynch you know, trope or something, but uh, that something you know something that carried over from Wild at Heart into at least her character in in season three. Also it's, with the the infirmed and the elderly, Lynch seemed to have one scene in every film where there was elderly person or someone who was infirmed, and we get that in Wild at Heart uh, as well. I mean, uh, Grace Abriski's character Juana has a clubbed foot, which is as an interesting side note, Jennifer cool. Lynch. His yeah. daughter was born with club feet, and I read a quote of hers recently where she said that she, when she, she was in club feet, like in her first memory, she she wasn't able to walk. She was able to crawl, and she has a vivid memory of crawling to a statue in her grandmother's house, who I'm assuming is Lynch's grandmother, because in that house was a replica of Venus de Milo statue. Isn't that interesting? Ooh, it's the one in the Black Lodge, probably. Exactly, but. Um, before, oh, real quick on, on the soundtrack aspect, we're talking about all those classic uh, tunes and whatnot. One thing to mention is there is a Pendrecki cue in Wild at Heart. That's interesting. Where the hell's that? It is very subtle. It's during the flashback to when Lula's father's dying. You know, he's a, you know, he, you know. It's in the fire? Yeah, in the fire. I mean, he didn't set himself on fire. She thought he did or whatever. Played by... Who? Who's the actor that played the guy in the fire? Who's the dad? I have no Who's, idea. Tom, you don't know this? <laughs> it's probably someone who uh, <laughs> appeared in Twin Peaks at some point. But know that audio cue... Probably an extra. 
is yeah probably an extra probably a stunt man because you know a stunt man actually yeah. but i thought that was interesting because i don't think i know he used pendrecki in inland empire and, and he used it in part eight and, and and a couple other episodes in season three but here it is in 1990 you know he's using pendrecki which i thought was interesting and also it's the first time that cooper I- was using pendrecki in the 60s buddy Oh, I know. I'm just talking about Lynch. It's not the first one to use it, but uh, <laughs> it makes it, you know, for me, I'm glad that because the, that scene in part eight is so iconic, the, the bomb and using Pendrecki. I've read that, oh, Kubrick's used it, and I think uh, Kozlowski uh, or you know, someone else you know, had a, a very important scene accompanied with that music. But the fact that Lynch was using him in 90, at least he was on his radar, and he implemented it in a film. So, you know, I kind of like that. But um, also another thing is Who that... He used one of the Chris Isaac songs. I think it's called In the Heat of the Jungle during the big tuna scene, like with Bobby, you know, at the trailer park. Okay. But he slowed it down. He also blew Spanish Sky. Oh, okay. He yeah, slowed it down like in, in season three with American Woman and Moonlight Sonata. He was actually using the same Because te- I can't remember him slowing down music in a soundtrack before. I, I mean, I could be wrong. It could be like 18,000 references. But this is the first one that I can recall as he was doing it in Wild at Heart and during the Big um, Tuna scene. Okay, so let's talk about the really the scene that probably is the best scene in the film, but also maybe uh, the scene that divides not only critics and audiences. When I first read the first review I read of Wild at Heart was an Entertainment Weekly review, and I gave it a, a C minus, and I was so pissed and bummed because um, I knew it already won uh, the Palm Dior at, at at Cannes, but they focused on the scene with Bobby Peru and Lula. That's the scene that I think divides a lot of people in that it's film. One of the most upsetting scenes, yeah, it's very upsetting. But don't you think it's 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 not only it's well executed, but it's it's critical terrifying. for both of their characters. Yeah, it's terrifying. It makes them out to be a horrible person and this insane maniac. Do you think she really was succumbing like to his uh, his passions, or was it just a way to get out of this horrible rape situation? No, I think it's part of the whole thing. The whole film for me is... Was she abused least, by her father? You know well, that, so she's into abusers? Is that I, the thing? I think that's tied into it. So the reality of, of their reality for the first half of the movie is kind of a fantasy. They're young. They're you know, breaking parole. They're having sex. They're dancing. They're doing all these adventures. You know, they got their the mom is is you know hiring you know Johnny Farragut or, or sending Johnny Farragut to you know to, to you know lasso them in and bring them back home. They're just they're being rebellious and they're having a good time. But every, from the scene of Sherilyn Fenn, the accident, it really is the transition into the reality of of what their lives really are and what they will be. And for Lula in that scene that we know that she was raped by Uncle Pooch and has already been abused. And who knows you know, what other cases of, of abuse that she's gone through in her life. But we kind of combine that with her hypersexuality with Sailor, with her hand when, she's or, when she has an orgasm, like extends out. Like, so she's feeling that pleasure throughout every nerve ending in her body. And here she is being accosted and abused by Bobby Peru, who's playing a game with her, but she doesn't know that, but she relents. And I think like her sexuality inside of her, that, that part of her, her id, what have you, is the one that says, fuck me. But really she's being 
you know, in, in essence, you know, raped and abused, and she doesn't want to fuck this guy, but it's a conflict. But it's also the reality of of, of the situation and the character, and I think the, their future if she doesn't make any kind of changes. Because really, Bobby Peru represents kind of the the black angel dark side of Sailor Ripley. I mean, he has that part of him within her, just like she has this kind of hypersexuality. She can be kind of a bad girl. She's got, you know, her mom's blood running through her veins as well. Her dad was a a known felon and a drug addict in the script, at least. So, I mean, they're dealing with it, but I, I don't think they're dealing with it in their real lives. Yeah, I think that's probably true because she's not definitely not just really attracted to him. She's not into, like, BDSM. And because uh, you know why? Because of the teeth, Tom. Because of the teeth. <laughs> Willem Dafoe's a fine-looking gentleman without the teeth, but they throw the teeth in there. And uh, just the way he played it, it was just, it was sickening. It was horrifying, you know? So, uh, I don't know. She also could have been just trying to get out of the situation. You know, he trying to get the fuck out of there. Well, the teeth is what made the role for Willem Dafoe. He said once he found the teeth, like, he had Bobby Peru, the character, like, nailed. But that scene... Um um, also, it's very interesting because I think on the documentary, when you watch it, they shot like a wide shot and then they went close or whatever. But it it's so well executed. And just when it, it comes off so innocently where he comes in and go, can I use your head? I'm not going to piss on your head, head. You know, and all these classic little lines like, you know, you know, you hear a deep sound coming from Bobby Peru, all these things. And then it slowly turns. And then when he says, and he yells at her like, I'll rip your fucking heart out, girl. I mean, that's like terrifying, terrifying. Not only to like, you know, Lula, the character, but like to the audience. But what I recall with the, the scene itself and the way that it's paced and shot and edited, the, the scene that it, it closely resembles for me is also a very controversial, uh, controversial scene is Straw Dogs, which I mentioned earlier before, is that there's a character in that film play, played by Susan George who's married to Dustin Hoffman. I don't want to go into the whole backstory, but she is she's raped by someone she knows an ex-boyfriend and she tries to fight him off and fight him off and he won't relent and then at some point she kind of gives in to uh that because i think she's all worn down and she does know the guy and a lot of people uh and then it turns bad because someone else joins and it becomes really just crazy or whatever but a lot of people really pick that pick at that scene because they see it's essential uh, sensationalized that 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 she's enjoying the rape but it's it's so multi-layered and there's so many different things going on it's just it's a potent scene i don't enjoy watching these scenes um uh, uh emotionally but i do as a lover of film and the fact that like lynch and peckinpah and you know he's, he's the director of straw dogs you choose to show these scenes that 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 are that are going to stir up controversy um are you know a testament to you know the story that they're trying to tell and the balls that they have as as filmmakers it's it's not well it's a testament they, also tom, to toxic masculinity those balls are full <laughs> of too much testosterone well i don't i just think i mean i'm sure that there's arguments <laughs> the funny for, thing is, is he, he cut the, the 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 drama of that scene for him going like well i would honey but i gotta go you know <laughs> making a crazy joke out of it like that was insane well, yeah, but that's Lynch. He's always doing that. And I think that's why Ebert got on him is that he wanted Lynch to either go completely straight or go completely make a comedy. He hated the combination of the violence and the, the comedy, like Topper, you know, fucking Isabella Rossellini, like Baby Wants to Fuck, with the violence hitting her and then just the comedy of him just, you know, humping her the way that he was. And, and in this scene. And it's just like, that's just not who Lynch is as a filmmaker. And I think Lynch is, he'll say it himself. It's all about the idea. That, that Lula isn't every woman. Isabella Rossellini isn't every woman. And Bobby Peru isn't every man. These are just characters in a movie. I mean, it's just a movie. This really is a controversial scene. But I think it's also probably the best scene of the film. And it and, and might be the, 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 
uh, one of the best scenes that Lynch has ever shot, in my opinion. I think it's. I think you nailed on the one scene that they, but, but the reason why it's not on platforms. People see this scene and they're not liking it. They're like, "Oh Jesus, I can't handle this shit." Well, it's not to be liked, but it's it's true to the characters and it's true to the story. And if you think of the scene, is that this is a transition? Think about like Sailor and Lula. Like, do you ever think about like he's breaking parole and taking her to sunny California? But what the hell were they going to do in sunny California? They didn't mention anything, right? Become actors. <laughs> Start a band. <laughs> models. It's all a fantasy. Big <laughs> Tuna is the reality, and that's where the film really comes to a halt. Screeches to a halt. Well, eventually, right, the cops would start, you know, chasing him, right? Maybe. Well, for like someone. If they are bro- busting parole. Yeah. Nah, I don't but if he's got a. How old is she? Is she 18? She's 20 and he's supposed to be 23. Okay. Well, she was underage. Yeah. They could have the you know, old cops after him. But yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, he's, he's going to recidivism, Tom. He's going to end up knocking the liquor <laughs> store again, knocking somebody's head off, and going back to jail before they get to California. You, you know, know what I find interesting, too, is that, that when Nick Cage goes to see Isabella Rossellini, I love that. We got that little... Who was she, Tom? Who was that character? Perdita Durango, I think, is her, her character's Explain name. Explain her just connection. What is that type of character? Well, she's connected to uh, Juana, played by Grace Zabriskie, Red, Reggie, and Drop Shadow. They're all, because doesn't Bobby Peru look at that picture and goes, the whole gang. She's just retired out to the desert in a no-horse town. Yeah. Maybe she's hiding. We don't know, but Bobby Peru and her are in cahoots, so I think that... She's still connected to Mr. Reindeer and those people in New Orleans. So I don't think she's in hiding. She's probably just placed out there for him to find. Is that the deal? Well, I don't know. But what I want to talk about... Calico Odessa. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say is that the first shot that we get of that is Mr. Reindeer makes that mysterious second call because there's two hits. One goes to Johnny Farragut, one goes to Sailor. So we don't know which one of those silver dollars is connected to who and who's going to do who or whatever. But when he makes that second phone call, we cut to that house. And, uh, but we don't know who's in that house or who that person represents. And then when Nick Cage shows up, when they get to Big Tuna, we find out it's, it's Isabella, Isabella Rossellini's character. But that house and just the backdrop and the landscape when I was watching it just evokes Carrie Page House in Part 18, like completely, completely for me. Well, does that, does that mean he's a hack or a visionary? Painting <laughs> <laughs> tropes? <laughs> just, it just evokes it. It's like the whole thing. We're talking about like all these Twin Peaks theories and putting stuff together and uh, the, the multi-layered Lynch verse that we could talk about forever. I think it cascades to his other films. I'm not saying it's something that he's conscious when he's shooting Part 18. And you can someone could look at it and go like, I, you're, you're talking out of your ass, buddy. This, this doesn't evoke uh, Wild at Heart Perdita's house at all. But for me, it does. And uh, I don't think I'm just making it up that there's just there's a hair of a vibe evoking to to part 18. But also the Isabella Rossellini character. I don't know if this is true or not. I don't know what Lynch's uh, role to Frida Kahlo might be. But that is a serious Frida Kahlo vibe with almost the unibrow and just the her look. Mm. Um, any thoughts? I don't think so. The unibrow. <laughs> I would not say well, Frida wasn't Kahlo. she into yeah. kind of surrealism herself, Frida Kahlo? Yeah, but you're saying that, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, okay, all right, I can see that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what I actually can see more is that in, this, in the Lynch sphere, the Lynch universe or whatever, that like, uh, that, that those two places could be similar. Odessa, Carrie Page's world is out there somewhere where Isabella Rosalini's hiding out in Wild at Heart. I can see that. That's where the Frida Kahlo part, I'm not so sure. 
there's nothing in Wild at Heart that connotes this alternate timeline or you know uh, shifting identities, things that were going to be more prevalent in other Lynch films. But at the same time, I think that Wild at Heart isn't an outlier in Lynch's Orvois. I think that there are themes and and tropes in the film that yeah. he's very easily. Sailor could have taken could have been dating Laura Palmer before she died and gone on the run with Laura. <laughs> Instead of Lula. Well, you know, Laura Palmer makes a an appearance in this film. Oh, where? As an orb. Oh, that's right. She's the yeah, good good witch Glinda. That she yeah. is. She's in a pink orb, not a golden orb. We forgot to mention her. How did we not mention her in the group? I thought you did. I thought you mentioned Laura. I don't think I did. did? Yeah. Or maybe I did. There were so many. I probably left it. And you know what? I probably missed a few. Was any of the Fusco brothers in it? <laughs> I don't think so. In Big Tuna? I don't. Oh, you're thinking. Like a George Zunza kind of guy with a cowboy hat. You know who that is? That's, that's Pruitt Taylor. Vince, I think he was in a slew okay. of movies in the '90s and uh, and the aughts. He's great. He's got. He wasn't, he wasn't a Fusco. No, he was not. He was. The, you mean the tall, goofy Fusco? That's not him. I don't know any any of the Fuscos. Well, one was David. No, David Ketchum. Yeah. yeah, I know that guy. Yeah. But the, one of the other two. Guys. No, he. I don't think he was. No, I don't think he was at all. But uh, but uh, Bobby Pruitt. So we got to talk about Bobby Pruitt. We got to talk about Marietta, and uh, then we can wrap things up. I know. I didn't like Bobby Pruitt when I was a kid because everyone told me that I looked like Willem Dafoe, Tom, when I was in high school. <laughs> and so this kind of ruined my uh, my my game as being a, an A-listing uh, leading man type, and they turned me into turned me into a freak, Tom. Turned me into a freak in the eyes of a lot of people, and it was it was really painful. Willem Dafoe. I mean, he was. I mean, he's not the most attractive man in, in the planet. On he's the planet, great, but you know, so I can I see that. But as Bobby Pruitt is iconic. I mean, he's great. I'll always remember this line from the uh, Oscars in 1991, like on the red carpet when they're interviewing all the stars when they're coming in. Nicholson showed up in his shades, probably completely stoned off his ass, and whatever. Someone, Lisa Gibbons or someone, was asking him a question and something to the effect of, "Well, what was you know, what were some of your favorite performances, performers of this year?" and uh, he only mentioned one person, and he mentioned Willem Dafoe in Wild and Heart, and he also mentioned he was so good they failed to nominate him. And uh, I always remember that. And like within the industry, I think a lot of people probably didn't take to this film because of the you know the violence and the absurdity and and just the the Lynch supposed weirdness for the sake of weirdness. But Jack got it. Jack got Willem Dafoe's a uh, character. I think that it's one of the best performances in the Lynch film. It's 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 menacing. It's it's evil. It's also funny, and it's also quiet at times too. He plays a whole. Did you think it kind of tapered off there at the end, though? You mean the film or the, his his? No, Bobby Prue. Like when they end up robbing and the whole robbing part. Like when he gets his head shut off, it kind of gets a little kind of tapers off. He starts with a bang. He's kind of like a chameleon. It's like he's fine. He's like shedding his skin, and it's like who's the real Bobby Peru? So he's this. You know, kind of this cool cat that, you know, is the coolest thing that hit, you know, Big Tuna since the Cyclone of 86 or whatever. I shared the roof off the high school. And then he's this weird rapist. And, but, but he really is like a buffoon. Like, he's really just a dumbass. He's also, he's not a really good Exactly. Criminal. He's like, those are dummies, dummy. And he's like, dummy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, and then he's just kind of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm shot. I'm caught. I'll just, you know, go out with a bang, a literal bang. And he just, well, he's supposed to be kind of like, a, is he supposed to be like an allegory metaphor or whatever for like Satan or something? Like, you know. The Black Angel. Something. I think he's a Black yeah, Angel. Black Angel. But I think he's made up to be like a, an absurd redneck hitman version of Clark Gable. You know, with a hair slicked back and little pencil thin mustache pencil thin. and his outfit. I think it's kind of Clark Gable-esque. It's another little pop sure. culture thing there. But um, I, I just, like I said, I think he's more kind of a chameleon and that was his true self. 
at the end there, which I, I find endlessly entertaining. I thought he was an incredible character. I love one of my favorite moments is when they're driving and it's there's no dialogue. It's just Battle of Mente's score and it's it's uh, Isabella and, and Willem in the front seat and Nick Cage is in the back. And uh, he just gives this kind of look and he laughs and you can't hear it because the soundtrack is so sweeping. It's very uh, operatic. And just the way that it comes across, he really comes alive on, on, on the screen. And uh, um, I, I loved his character. I mean, I don't, lo- I don't love the character, but I loved his performance. And I thought I think it's very iconic. In the it was person. good, just a little much, a little long at the end. Okay. Use less. The first hour, great. The second, they started getting a little, you know, a little bit, a little bit too much of just like Sailor Lula and Bobby Peru towards the end. That's all I thought. I think I like the cavalcade in the beginning. I prefer that. That's the fantasy. Yeah. I know. No, I get it. I get it. What you're saying. I love that it slows down and it becomes this little kind of self-contained pocket movie. But you know, like in terms of rewatchability, like often you and I will like watch movies and then we'll like end up realizing that we stop at the same point. <laughs> like, oh, I got an hour in and yeah, that's about enough. I see. Like, I'll see about an hour. And I'll be like, yeah, well, that's probably about enough. I, yeah. I'll so you would stop right, right when they got into Big Tuna. Yeah. Well, maybe just, you know, let it go for a while. <laughs> but uh, eventually I'll stop. What about uh, Marietta? <laughs> I haven't gotten to the end. Marietta's great. She's fantastic. Well, she actually got nominated. She's the, actually, I mean, she is, like, she is the movie. Like, she's the number one driving force. She's psychotic. She's uh, just beautiful. Like, she's amazing. She's evil. She's brilliant. Uh, I really liked her. I think she was a great performance. And she got nominated, you said? Yeah, she did get she's nominated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she was incredible. And Laura Dern and Mother. Yeah, that's great. Mother and daughter. Yeah, I thought. Great peak performances for both of them. Yeah, I thought she was incredible. Um, really just a fascinating character you know one of the things that i find interesting is that little subtlety there is that remember in the beginning uh when uh, uh sailor and lula are you know getting ready to go out and and lula hears that wicked laugh from the next mm-hmm. door and kind of creeps her out and uh if you notice when you flash back to the scene where you see that she and santos really killed the father she gives that same laugh that was her laugh that she was hearing it was Diane Ladd's mm-hmm. laugh Marietta's laugh which I never picked up on and that was just a, another little thing that I really kind of liked it was a, it really kind of an evil laugh and uh, uh, she was great the whole scene with the lipstick I mean this movie is out there it really is like bizarre why is she painting putting lipstick on her face but the way that you Lynch sometimes you just do that when you break down <laughs> I've done it before. Like Mandy. The sound design with, with that scene and she's looking in the camera. Remember the scene, that very, like one of her first scenes where she's sipping her martina, martini really slow and just staring into the camera and Lynch just holds on her. She's just got the perfect face and she's just an, a great talent and it's it was a perfect role for her. I think that she was incredible. Um, I think she played it legitimately that she didn't want Johnny to be killed even though a part of her maybe did because he would know what she was into with Up reindeer and Santos. But I think she legitimately like loved him and didn't want him. And then as soon as she realized that he had gone fishing with a friend and maybe Buffalo too, she knew, but I think she immediately compartmentalized that. And uh, he was gone poof because she wouldn't deal with the reality that she was responsible for his death. And she killed that. She, she really, you know, nailed it. She really nailed the whole movie. And, uh, even at the end, where she's just a you know a hot mess, so to speak. Does she and, melt? Yeah, she her picture melts. But when she says like, yeah. "Girl, what if I tell you not to go?" I mean, I just she is just man, she's great, just incredible. Do so. you think Mr. Ranger sent her a silver dollar? <laughs> afterwards, no, but you know the silver dollar. Who's on the silver dollar? JFK. No, he's the half half dollar. Oh, I think. Eisenhower. It's Ike, and yeah. uh, I think Lynch loves Ike. I like Ike. Ike. 
Uh, he liked it, so that was. I like that. That was the uh, yeah the old catchphrase yeah. back in the fifties, his favorite decade. <laughs> okay, so one of the thing, the ending of the film, um, Pace, Pace. You know the hat he's wearing? No. Remember the, the kind of I big was wearing a hat. hat? No, he had this big duck billed hat. The kid, yeah, he's like a kid. If he had, yeah, yeah, that's Lynch's hat. That's his that's his lucky director hat. Oh, that's a hat. Okay, he would wear that on the pilot of Twin Peaks. And then I don't know if every subsequent film, I think a couple of them, but definitely on the return, that's his lucky hat. And he, he gave must have it a very small head. <laughs> it was big on the kid, yeah. yeah. But uh, I thought that was interesting. What's your take on the happy ending versus the book having the ending which was not happy? Do you think Lynch made the right choice? And did you like the ending? Uh, I did like the ending. Yes, I did. After all that hell, I wanted to see some happiness. And uh, I was very pleased. I didn't think the ending was necessarily the way they ended. It was necessarily awesome, but I liked it and I was very pleased with it. And it made me not just be totally bummed out at the end. Um, I wanted to succeed. I was like, I hope they're still together, Tom. He's probably dead for sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. What know. do you think has happened to them? Do you think they're still together? No, he got Bob, someone Bob Ray Lemon him. He got Bob Ray Lemon <laughs> for sure. Like she probably died of smoking and alcohol related illnesses already. So it's just pace. Oh God. Like, he didn't have much parental guidance at all. No. But, uh, the one of the things that really rings true of of the film, uh, people say what you want about the the weirdness of the film and the violence, but that really the heart of the film is is them in bed talking and getting to know each other, telling them stories, uh, telling each other stories about their past, and that's something that you know I didn't really know a lot about when I was eighteen when I saw this because I was just in a relationship and we weren't living together. But as I became a man and I, I did you know, date someone who I lived with, specifically one example, um, that was a big part of our relationship. Like sometimes like the, our relationship didn't really work well. You know exactly who I'm talking about, and, you know, from you know nine to five or whatever, but in bed, and I'm not talking about that, but we would stay up all night talking and telling stories. And that is really kind of the, the core of, of my relationship with this person and uh, my happiest memories. And I think that kind of holds true for a lot of people. And uh, the fact that Sailor and Lula were, were doing that and Lynch took the time to tell those stories or to show those sh- sides of those characters, I think wasn't, you know, it was not only very interesting for the film and the characters, but it also ring, rings true in reality. And it's something that I experienced as well. And it's one of the things that was kind of a, a happy moment in a relationship of mine. And I love that. I love being in bed with a woman I'm in love with, telling her stories about my past, all these crazy things, and I like hearing stories from her as well. Uh, so you got all your intimacy tips from Sailor Ripley. <laughs> and Lula. And by the way, did you know that Lynch cut this in the film, but it is in the script? You know who the father of Lula's baby is? It's not Uncle Pooch. Who? It's Dell. He's the one. Duh. Yeah. Oh, ow. He cut that out. Dell impregnated. No. Uh, and he shows I up. I thought it was the... Sailor. I thought it was Sailor's kid. No, remember she had the abortion? Remember she has the scene? Oh. Uh, uh, she tells him had an abortion and she Wait, tells so he goes him, like, hey, Paige, nice to meet you. I thought he was like, this is your daddy. Did, she didn't no. say that? No. Remember there's a scene where she. What? She's, there's a scene where she says about the Uncle Pooch and she had the abortion and uh, it flashes back somewhere late in the film. You see her with the, whatever, that magnifying lens on her and you see the blood. Like in the abortion, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but. But I thought that was from Uncle Pooch's uh, knocking her out. Exactly, but in the script, it was Dell. He changed it. it was oh, Del. oh, 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 I see what you're saying. She tells him the story in the script Ew. about Dell and goes, oh, he's the one who actually impregnated me. And well, I, I guess really what's the difference, an uncle or a cousin? So that's, well, it's all bad. 
But the Christmas Dale, that would probably be a very Kafka-esque. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Is that, can you imagine Lula, Laura Dern with Crispin Glover? Dale? All the sandwiches and the bugs and the Christmas, yeah, the, the glove. Oh, Jesus. On that okay, note. on that note, okay, we're going to end Wrap here. it up. I could talk another three hours about this film, and maybe I'm compensating because we only talked 30 minutes about Blue Velvet. I really want to talk more about that at some point. But um, uh, this, and probably only eight people are going to listen to this because... Um, there's no I, you know, on social media. I'm all over Twin Peaks and the Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. Never hear anything about Wild at Heart. So you know, we appreciate anyone who's going to listen to this because we we really love this film. And if you haven't seen it, we highly recommend it. And uh, on that note, give me right now. And I hate to put you on the spot, but your favorite three quotes from the film that you still use to this day. And please give me the impersonation. Uh, stab it, steer, stab it, steer. The phone ringing, and then um, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of a third one. I can't think of a third one. I don't see. That's what I'm saying. Like, it, it's uh, I may disagree. I think that this movie may be wonderful for our time and to have seen it when we were kids. But I'm not sure that the young generation is going to love this movie anymore. You know, we may be dated. Uh-oh. See, all of mine are best. See, all of mine are X-rated. <laughs> so like, do you want to fuck Lula's mama? <laughs> that's a good one. I've used that one before. You please me too, Peanut. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yes, you please me too, Peanut. I've used that a lot. But then, actually, with girlfriends, I've noticed them to go like, hey, uh, don't call me Peanut, asshole. I think it definitely it's... I've done that a lot. We've done that. <laughs> <laughs> On that note... <laughs> oh. Any final thoughts? Yeah, my final thought is, I think I attribute... Yeah my uh, smoking habit to this film as well because it's impossible oh dude all David Lynch he started yeah <laughs> but on. this film we should be sued we could sue him we should all sue him everybody started smoking because of Lynch and Twin Peaks let us know we made it file a class action suit against him do you remember the scene where she tells him she's pregnant and he lights the two cigarettes yes do you remember doing that with the marble mediums oh, yeah. back in the day at 611 yeah, I think I've had a whole pan of food once I think I've had like five or six cigarettes going on <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work out well. Didn't work out well. Don't smoke, kids. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next time. Stab it and steer. Well, if they've seen Wild at Heart, they see little Jerry walking in the street going, and you're like, what the fuck is that? That's Jerry Horn. Little monkey. Monkey boy.
It's a big 